Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Financial Father and Son podcast where we explore the various ways the younger generation can achieve financial independence. On today's episode I am joined with Connor from Investment Talk. We have a long chat about his journey with regard to investing. We also talk about the red flags to look out for when investing in a company and finally we go over how you should start your journey to investing in individual companies. As per usual, timestamps are in the description of this episode, so feel free to skip to a certain topic. So I'm delighted today to be joined by Connor from Investment Talk. He is an equities analyst and uh, we're just going to have a chat. So if you could uh, begin with Connor, telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, where and how you started your investment or investing journey. Yeah, sure. First of all, thank you for having me here, Jay. Really excited to have this discussion today. So... In terms of the journey, if we can go back to kind of what incentivized me to start investing, I'd say that it came fairly late. Um, I was originally first interested in business in general. Um, So during kind of the high school years, um, I was quite an active student and I really enjoyed studying with certain categories of subjects weren't so interesting to me. It was only until you kind of get to the later stages of secondary school and I started adopting and picking up all the kind of business-focused subjects. I do recall picking up business management, business admin, accounting, and this was kind of like the clicking moment. It was something that was really interesting to me. I didn't realize at the time that that would propel into investing, Um, but that's kind of where I found that I put most of my dedication and I really enjoyed kind of studying for it. It never felt like work. It was the first time I was studying for subjects where it felt like I actually wanted to learn and absorb all the information. So that's kind of where it started. And then following on from the end of secondary school, my interest was a bit broader. I wanted to study economics and kind of understand how markets work, how the broader economy works, how the kind of micro-level psychology of consumers works. So I spent four years studying economics, and it was during that degree that I actually discovered that I was really interested in the kind of investment space, more so than the broader economic space. So during, I think, my second year of university, I was quite an avid reader at the time. I would, Prior to this, I was mainly reading kind of autobiographies. I remember the first book I really enjoyed was Richard Branson's autobiography, the once CEO of Virgin. I read both of his autobiographies and found them to be really captivating. So I then went on and read a bunch more. I remember the Elon Musk one was great. Howard Schultz had a few good ones. These are more kind of business focused and entrepreneurial. And then during second year of university, we had quite a heavy allocation towards kind of corporate finance modules. And there was one small investing module, but we never really tackled the the depths of like how to analyze a company. We did kind of general level accounting. So that was something that I started studying on my own, aside from uni, um, read a lot of great books and kind of tried to understand the theory before I started investing. And then during the second year of university, when I would have been around 19, that's when I started kind of buying equities. Um, Made a lot of mistakes at that point, which I'm sure we'll cover later. Um, But that was a really valuable learning experience. Following on from the economics degree, 
as you do when you're kind of a young adult, you are unsure about what's coming coming ahead. So I, I wanted to give myself an extra year and also stack up my credentials a little bit more. So I just studied a master's and this was kind of entrepreneurship and innovation. That was less a factor of, oh, this will get me a role. This was more a factor of, this is an interesting subject. I feel like I need another year to kind of figure things out. Mm. And, and it was fairly easy. The It wasn't as hard as the undergrad. I just spent four years studying economics. So one year studying innovation was quite refreshing for me. Mm. Following on from the master's, I then enrolled in the CFA who, for anyone listening that doesn't know, is just the Chartered Financial Analyst designation. It kind of solidifies yourself into the profession, gives you a legitimate designation. Um, that was something that really propelled my analytical ability um, because in the CFA, you really go granular into how to read financial statements, how to value a company, how to project future cash flows to come to a present value. Um, so that was something that I'm really happy that I did. I wish I did it one year earlier, but yeah, hindsight is, is a wonderful thing. Mm. Um, so that takes me up to where we are now. Okay. No, that's very interesting. So, so you say you started your, or you bought your first equity at 19. What was it then that yeah. kind of convinced you or pushed you to, or finally let you make that decision to buy? So it's an interesting thing. Cause as I said, I was, I was reading books and the first few books that I actually read were more value focus. So I read The Intelligent Investor, the classic the classic one. I read a lot of the little book series. Mm. Um, one of the first ones I picked up was value investing. So I was learning all this kind of theory about net nets um, and how to kind of buy unloved stocks. And then I went out and bought Canopy Growth Corp, a, canopy, a cannabis company, which is completely the opposite of what <laughs> Ben Graham kind of professes. Yeah. Um, this was, I always say this was my favorite investment because for a few reasons, it was my first one. I did so many things wrong. So it taught me so much. And at the time, it was a small amount of uh, capital that I was putting in. So even though it could have hurt, it was, you know, it's not going to affect me in the long run. So making these mistakes early is something that I'm really happy about. Mm. Um, the incentive, I guess it was speculation. And I'm happy to admit that. I was, it was around the time before Canada kind of legalized it on a recreational level. I think it was early 2017. And I just decided to go search for cannabis companies. I thought, oh, I must be ahead of the market here. I must know something the market doesn't, mm. uh, being naive. Um, so I then researched a few cannabis companies. At that time, I wasn't super proficient in kind of valuing a company. I could understand the kind of line items on the financial statements, but I wouldn't say that I could derive a good intrinsic value for a company mm. um, by looking at the accounts. I read the annual statements uh, during lectures and kind of figured out that I wanted to invest in Canopy Growth Corp. So at the time I had around 1,500 pounds and I just sunk it all into one position, which is, um, stupid in hindsight but it taught me a lot um and it taught me about capital allocation and it also taught me about kind of mentality of investing as well i remember that it was up 20 percent and i felt quite good and then it kind of dropped 25 percent and i was down five percent 
Mm. And I remember thinking, I need to kind of sell this. So I sold it at 5% loss. And then, as you know, this was prior to the kind of cannabis industry, uh, big influx of capital and the kind of small bubble. I don't like saying bubble, but the kind of small bubble that they face. So I would have made a good return if I just held on. Um, but the incentive was purely speculative at the time. Okay. So then looking back on that, if you had the knowledge you've got now, you know, back then when you made that first buy, was there, would there be anything you would have done differently? It's interesting because now, if I knew what I knew now and I was in early 2017 and I kind of understood um, the legislation impact and how that would affect the cannabis industry, I think I would have still believed that there would be kind of bullish momentum for the short term in that industry whilst the legislation is kind of uncertain. And then when it passes, that's the confirmation. And when you have brand new industries and economies, typically you get this big wave of capital influx from individual investors, retail, uh, government as well. And then you've got institutions. So it's kind of drives prices up, the demands there. Mm. Um, so even if there is some kind of asset bubble created, the, the demand is always going to be pushing capital into that industry. For, so for the short term, it's going to be going up. So I think if I was in 2017 and knew what I knew now, I would probably still be attracted to the proposition of cannabis. Um, I'd probably take a much smaller position. Now, typically when I identify a new position, especially if it's one that's not profitable, it'll be you know 3% of the portfolio, it'll be a small allocation. So I have some skin in the game so I can be more incentivized to kind of keep up to date hmm. with the quarterly reports. So I could probably see myself still making a small investment in that space. Um, but I definitely would have had the kind of mentality to sell after it had rallied, you know, X hundred percent in yeah. however many months. Okay. So so what then is it that initially attracts you to looking into a company? So there's a few kind of different metrics, and this is again a personal thing. Um, there's a lot of if you follow a lot of kind of FinTwit accounts on Twitter these days, the momentum is towards growth stocks and cloud computing, you know, wireless payments and kind of rightly so. I mean, they're the companies that are benefit, benefiting during this lockdown period and their growth is getting accelerated. So, and they're still producing cash flow whilst everything's locked down. But for me personally, I don't have the kind of, I'm a bit more risk adverse. I couldn't go 100% into a growth portfolio. So for me, as a general rule, I typically allocate 65% to kind of income producing positions, 35% to kind of more growth positions at the moment <clears throat> is actually about 50% income, 30% mm. growth. And then the remainder is in what I would call either value slash special situations. And the kind of rationale and the way I find them is different for each. So typically with more income producing positions, these would be more maybe mature or stable companies. I use screeners quite a lot. Um, I'm a subscriber to Ycharts, which is a great service. Um, I don't get any incentive for promoting that. I'm just, I just really like the service. Um, so I use the screeners there. And typically, if I'm looking for something that pays a dividend, I'll be looking, does their free cash flow kind of support the dividend? Does it historically, are they a growing company? Are they kind of in that mature phase where they're shrinking? Uh, I'll be looking at like capital allocation, how they allocate the capital. Are they being unwise with the way they 
pay their dividend. Starbucks, for example, have a fairly large position in Starbucks, but I'm not super happy with the way that their dividend is set up. They're using debt to pay it right now. And their capital structure is kind of a mess. So that's why I'm not watching. So if I was to screen for stocks right now, I don't think I'd pick up Starbucks right now. It just so happens I have a position. Mm. For, for growth stocks, that's largely a factor of, of is it growing? So is the revenue kind of compounding year on year? Do they have free cash flow? So free cash flow is essentially, <clears throat> do they have money to pay any debts they have? Um, do they have money to put back into the business or are they using debt to continue to grow? Um, so growth stocks is like a way different kind of metric that I'll be looking for. I want them to be growing. I want them to be kind of smaller in a, maybe a new industry um, mm. that's not quite matured yet. If there's a lot of players in there, do they have a competitive advantage? And then for value, I'm typically not so interested in value positions. Um, I do hold a fairly large position in MGM Resorts, the casino company. And this kind of came to my attention because the opportunity just seemed very obvious to me. Again, the metric, it came up in a screener. So I was just screening for value positions to start curiosity. And basically, MGM is this big, massive company. Obviously, the sentiment's very low right now because casinos are shut, and rightly so. The market is supposedly supposed to be efficient, so we'll price things um, correctly in the long term. In the short term, maybe not so much. MGM, we're a big company, locked down, they cut their dividend. So when you're valuing present value, you're typically basing that off future cash flows. So if you remove dividends from the business, the value is obviously going to tank in a similar way. Um, MGM were trading below their book value. So technically, the value of their book was more than their market value, which was something that interested me. They had a lot of cash on hand. Hmm. With value positions, I'm looking at cash. Do they have enough cash to support themselves for one, two years, even if nothing's coming in? Um, so yeah, it kind of differs depending on what you're looking for. Yeah. Um, and just sometimes I will just randomly just have a look and have some screens set up. Um, I found Boohoo that way. Boohoo, and they kind of they're kind of like an entourage of brands, mainly in the UK uh, for women's clothing. They were really attractive. Actually, they had high growth rates. They had a lot of cash, low debt. Not a typical investment for me. Um, but I found it using a screener and was really attracted to it. So I took a position. Okay, that's cool. Now, with regards to MGM, uh, one question I would ask would be, do they have an online presence with their gambling? Yeah, so that was something that was not so pronounced a few years ago. Um, but they do have their MGM and their kind of iGaming division has actually been... Um, really propelling during this lockdown period. The statistics in their Q2 show that sports betting obviously has plummeted during the lockdown, but then the iGaming division is growing. Mm. They're number one market leader in New Jersey. It's fairly small. I think projected revenue for the year was in the hundreds of millions. I think it was around 130 million. Uh, don't quote me on that. Mm. Um, which is quite small when we, if we consider MGM prior to the crisis, they're making a lot more than that. Um, but they are getting in there and that's something that I think is really important two, three years down the line. Okay, cool. So then when you get into a position and it's, it's doing all well, that, that's great. Yeah. So I guess, I, I guess you ride the wave. Um, but 
what happens when it's not doing so well or not doing as you expected? How do you know when, you know, what's your level to say, I'm going to get out now? So that's a good, good question. And again, it depends on the type of position it is. Um, so for me, the mentality aspect is really important. So if you are confident in your conviction and your analysis and you understand one thing that Ben Graham always said was in the short term, the market is a voting machine. And in the long term, it's a weighing machine. So in the short term, you really have to kind of understand that a lot of the market movements are just purely driven by demand and supply. Mm. Uh, institutions and quote unquote dumb money is the one that's really moving the market quite a lot. So and you have to understand, so in March, for example, I know I'm drifting off a bit, but in March, for example, um, markets tanked, equities tanked, pretty much every security class tanked. But you have to understand that most of the money in the market is in pension funds, is in institutional hands, and they have certain quotas. They have to make a yield of X percent for their clients. So they can't have all their money in equities. They have to push it into quote unquote safe havens. That might be government bonds. Um, so the broader market moves with institutions typically. Um, I actually forgot the question. Um. <laughs> No, it was how do you get rid of a, a position or when do you know when to get out of a position? Yeah, yeah. so yeah, it depends on what kind of security it is. So yesterday, for example, um, Livongo Health uh, issued a merger with their Q2 earnings report that I wasn't super excited about. Uh, I had looked at Teladoc, basically two smaller uh, companies coming together. Their revenues would be just under $1 billion. Um, the difference is you had one super high growth software as a service company merging with one kind of still growing very fast, but a bit more incumbent, a lot more debt. And my thesis for buying Lavongo had now been broken. Mm. I didn't want to invest in Teladoc. I have confidence that the joint company is going to uh, be really successful, but I didn't invest in Teladoc um, for the reasons that it would kind of have being merged. So if my thesis is broken, and typically if I'm in doubt, I'll just get out. Mm. Um, but it's a psychological thing because with Lavongo, I was up 105%. So I was happy to sell. I was aware that that market is quite frothy, either justly or unjustly. So for me, it was quite an easy decision. Um, you have to kind of rely on your conviction. If MGM were to fall 20%, I would still kind of, I would still be happy holding and I'd yeah. probably increase my position because for the short term, the voting machine is coming into effect and the market is valuing it a lot less than its intrinsic value. Mm. But in the long term, if you can just continue to hold that position, the market should price it correctly. When the economy opens up and customers come in, revenues maybe won't go back to 2019 levels for a couple of years. But for me personally, I'm happy to wait for that. So I guess it's one of the best things to have. And something I learned only after a few years is that it doesn't have to be written down, but you need to have kind of set rules that you can look back to when your emotions are running high. Yeah. So for me, when the Lavongo merger came out, I was quite unsure of how to make it. I spent a few hours reading the merger report uh, I read Lavongo's Q2 earnings and I was really excited by the Q2 earnings because the growth rates were insane. Yeah. Um, company was growing really well, but the merger just didn't excite me as much. Mm. And 
part of my selling thesis is if your original investment thesis is broken, then that warrants selling. So it was just like remove the emotion, sell it. Yeah. Similarly, you have to kind of stay consistent because I think in the short term you can make some crazy profits if you kind of uh, remove your morals or remove your ethics or remove your kind of guidelines, mm. especially now in the current market. You could easily make some fat returns if you kind of sway from your original kind of outlook. You have to stay consistent because over the long term, if you stay consistent with your goals and you're going to be true to your investing self that way. Mm. I did have a similar instance a few weeks back um, with Square and CrowdStrike, a cloud and payments company. They had almost... In the grand scheme, they had doubled, but for the lot level, you know, you can like buy 10 shares and 10 shares and 10 shares. I had lots that were up over 100%. Um, on the aggregate level, Square and CrowdStrike had advanced over 100% for me. And the weighting of growth overall in my position was pushing 40 to 45%. So that's something I'm not super comfortable with. I'm not typically a growth investor. So I wanted to clip that back. So there I am finding myself trimming positions that have grown really well and since trimming have continued to grow really well. Mm. Um, so that's kind of, you have to remove the emotion and it's just a, a matter of capital allocation. It's not a matter of, oh, but Square could go on to do this. You could always get back into to, it, I guess. Yeah, know, later exactly. On. Mm. I still have positions in both, but it's just a matter of, I need to remove 5% from growth on my overall weighting. Yeah. I don't want to be that exposed. So you just have to remove emotions and act based upon your kind of predetermined rules. Oh, that makes sense. Now, with what you said about the, the voting machine, or in the short term, it being a voting machine, I mean, what you said, if the company is healthy um, and, you know, the voting machine is not doing so well now, you know that company, once coming out of all this, you're going to get, you know, cheap companies now. And when it comes out of all this, a few years down the line, you'll be winning. So, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, and in a very extreme way, um, in March, the I think it was thirty-one percent drawdown. That was ripe, really ripe for loads of opportunities. But the issue is, the market's fallen, um, however many percent, and the emotions come in, and you're like, mm -hmm. what if it falls another thirty percent? What if it's two thousand eight? What if it's nineteen thirty-seven? You know, what if it's two thousand? Um, so it's been really interesting for me personally, actually because I have a semi-short career. It's actually the first time I've been in an official bear market. Mm. I, I witnessed the correction in 2018. Um, and for anyone listening, a correction is typically between, between 10 and 20% decline from the, the previous highs in the kind of general market or independent market, or even just the individual security. And then a bear market typically is when we draw down over 20%. And... For me, witnessing and being part of a bear market was really interesting and I feel like a super valuable experience. Mm. Um, I, had, I have read a lot about panics and crashes and mentally, um, even though I saw my account hemorrhaging money, it doesn't really affect me so much. Um, at that time, maybe favorably or just coincidentally, I did have a lot of dry powder or just cash sitting in another account. So I bought quite heavily in March. Um, and I was happy to kind of watch that continue fall down if this lasted a year or two years. Yeah. Um, but I underestimated the Fed stimulus. 
uh, yeah, it's been a pretty crazy year, but super valuable learning experience for any investor. Mm. And it's uh, it's beneficial to have the crash or the downfall early on in your career as well. Um, so if you could look back then on these last few months, with hindsight, what would you do differently or what would you have done differently? I think with hindsight, hindsight's like an amazing thing because yeah. you can see what's happened and then you can just say, oh, I would do that. Um, I think one thing I'm really quite proud of um, that I did in March without hindsight was I witnessed that in the general market, when everything was tanking, your typical blue chip, uh, not value, but blue chip stocks like Starbucks, Coca-Cola, Fitzer, Johnson & Johnson, they were all getting hit super hard, especially brick and mortar stores um, with lockdowns. Obviously, they're going to be directly impacted. Starbucks has had a horrible year, and they're still underperforming the market to this day. So I noticed that they were kind of plummeting a lot harder than the general market. And you had positions uh, like Square, Cloud, subscription-based revenue companies. They weren't being hit as hard. The market is typically and generally very smart. If they can see that this company is still going to be producing cash flows during lockdown, they're not going to be as impacted. Their business might even excel, PayPal, for example. They're going to be treated a lot more fairly. They're not going to be sinking 40%. Um, so I noticed that they were actually falling a lot less. Mm. And then in my mind, initially when the coronavirus came out, I was unsure how long it would last. But I'm well aware that typically things last, when government's involved, things last a lot longer than they say they might. They were like, we might be out of this by summer. It's now it's now almost the, we're like 75% through the year and we're still battling with it. Places are still locking down. So my thesis was that over the year, with lockdown still being here, this asset class or category of companies is going to perform a lot better. Mm. So I actually shifted quite a lot of capital towards growth names, picked up positions in Square, CrowdStrike, Livongo. Um, I was going to add to PayPal, but I didn't, unfortunately. Um, so that was something that I was quite proud of. Removed exposure from the underperforming asset class, put it into the one that's going to be performing better during lockdown. Um, and if I hadn't have done that, my returns would probably be in the negatives right now, similar to a value portfolio. Um, but we are just beating the market, not something I super care about so much. Um, but in answer to your question, if I had complete hindsight, um, I would just sell everything and buy into growth names. <laughs> but yeah, that's something I joke about, it, but I, I wouldn't do that because I still have that set kind of guidelines and ethics. You have to stick to that, even though it might be so tempting to leverage up and buy into growth names you don't know what's going to happen. Hindsight is great because I can look at March and say, this is what happened over three months. Um, but at the time, I never would have knew. That would be ridiculous risk to take on. So moving the allocation was a good thing, but that was about the extent of kind of the risk tolerance being pushed up a bit there. Okay, that's great. So I found you on Twitter, as I guess a lot of people have now. Um, yeah. I, I really liked your Twitter and, and started following you and listening to what you had to say because you were very transparent with what you said, which was, mm. you know, very refreshing. So I want to ask why you started your Twitter account and did you anticipate you'd get such a, you know, a great reception? So that's a good question. Um, 
and one that I was actually thinking about a lot. So originally when I created the Twitter, this was actually prior to coronavirus. So maybe a month or so before, um, lockdowns weren't even a thing. Nobody thought the market was actually normal at this point, um, reaching all time highs prior to the crash. So it's just coincidental that I started right before, maybe a month before the coronavirus kind of kicked in and became mainstream news. And the incentive was purely to, there's a few reasons really. Um, one, I like to kind of help people. When I first started in my investing journey, it was quite bewildering. There was a lot of books. It seemed quite technical. You know, you have to understand accounting, business, economics, mm. um, corporate finance. And through studying the CFA, you know, that's quite expensive. I paid for that myself. You know, my company didn't pay for that. Um, through the CFA, I was like, these concepts are not so difficult, you know, but uh, people can't pay three, five thousand pounds to do all three levels and kind of graduate and get a designation. Um, you know, because most people in the UK and the general world can't do that. Hmm. So for me, just kind of sharing insights at kind of a general level and being able to talk with people and help them kind of get on their path, even if it's as simple as, oh, what books do you, did you read when you started? Hmm. Um, what lessons did you learn when you started? Kind of sharing my mistakes so other people can see them and maybe not make the same mistakes. Hmm. Another reason was accountability. So I, before starting Twitter, did actually write up theses for all my positions, um, but kind of in a diary kind of sense. Um, but what I found since joining Twitter is, you know, you put something out there and someone goes, oh, what about this? What about this? Um, you have conversation and it allows you to kind of think about things that your biases may be quashed. Um, and have discussion over that. So discussion was a really big one. Um, I do work in the finance field, the investment field, mm. but you'd be surprised at the lack of interest um, in the kind of equity markets. Um, to some people, it's just a job. You know, some people aren't interested in talking about it after hours or during work. So to have more discussion, I think, was one of the needs as well. Um, similar minds, similar interests. Another aspect would be just learning in general. Mm. I think I follow a lot of great accounts. Um, I kind of keep quite a tight following list because I just basically want information, uh, good opinions and insights, and also just general like market news coming into my feed during yeah. the day. So a learning aspect there. I would say now a lot of company news I find out about on Twitter. I do have notifications from the SEC though. Um, so it comes in at the same time. But yeah, I guess it was just curiosity. I'm quite a curious person. I wanted to kind of document my journey as well. I had tried doing that in the past. I actually tried doing that on Instagram when I first started, but the platform isn't really made for that. I didn't feel like it was really engaging. Yeah. Um, it was kind of just random. One evening I was like, yeah, I'll just start sharing kind of my insights, maybe some educational pieces and from the get-go, it was always every single thing I do in my portfolio, I'm just going to blatantly share it. Um, because I get a lot of, people always say, you know, okay, you have X amount in your portfolio value. Why should anyone listen to you? Um, 
it's, it's relatively small in the grandest scheme of things. But then my response is always, you know, like people in this position are sometimes the best people to learn from, you know, because they're just kind of not at the very beginning, but they're on their way to the journey. And if you kind of absorb that, those lessons and kind of thought processes, you can kind of learn from that as well. Also people at the very beginning of their journey, they maybe follow some big FinTech accounts, but nobody's posting, oh, I bought this for this price. I sold it for this price. Here's my rationale. They're just saying, oh, I bought this. I sold this. Um, and some of them provide fantastic rationale, don't get me wrong. But I just really like being super transparent just so anyone that's maybe new can just see, oh, this is exactly what this guy's doing um, yeah. and understand like why I'm doing that. In the later part of the question, yeah, I never anticipated growing quite so large. I never anticipated monetizing the Twitter account. It was purely just a factor of, yeah, this is something I want to share. It's quite a crazy few months because um, I grew quite fast in quite a short space of time. And then within one month of being on Twitter, I found myself writing a 189-page guide. Mm. Um all the questions I were getting were related to financial statements. You know, what is a balance sheet? Uh, what does uh, receivables mean? And I just wanted something I could just give to people um, and kind of say, yeah, I wrote about this, go check this out. Um, so I spent a month writing that and the reception was crazy. I think at the time I had around 1,000 followers, mm. which is a lot, um, but a lot less than what I have now. Um, and the reception was crazy. People really enjoyed it. I've actually yet to have any like serious negative response from that. It really helped a lot of people. Um, I think over 500 people have now read it, um, which is crazy. Um, never anticipated that. Mm. And yeah, so I think the main reason for starting Twitter was just to kind of be accountable to myself. Don't make any stupid YOLO decisions. Because um, if I do that, someone's going to be like, oh, but you said you do this and you stick to this kind of guidelines. Why are you doing that? Mm. So it's kind of like that external pressure to stay within um, the guidelines that I've set out. I also love to educate and share and just dis on a discussional level as well. And I think that ties in. Um, I now write a daily newsletter and that's something I'm like super passionate about. Like it's like Twitter, but I can just say a whole lot more. Mm. Um, so that's a journey I'm really excited about too. Yeah, you've. I think. I guess you've unintentionally created a brand. Um, yeah. Which is. I mean, it looks great from the outside. And congratulations for uh, thirteen thousand followers. I saw you hit that. Oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> yesterday. Um, so, so on Twitter, then you you talk about buying ETFs through your Vanguard ISA. Now, a question I want to know. I don't know what your response will be, but would you foresee yourself being a, a more defensive, low-cost, passive investor in the future, say near retirement, or do you feel you're going to mm. always want to actively find new companies? That's a really good question. Um, and it's something I've thought to myself before as well. And usually when people are asking me um, questions about positions or stocks or just, you have to consider that like every investment and every investor has a different A, time horizon, B, Kind of risk profile, mm. um, different goals, different you know aspects like that. So everyone's different, um, and as you approach your later life, your time horizon becomes a great deal shorter. 
you might be more incentivized to have investments that give you cash flows. Mm. You might no longer be working in five, 10 years. So you might want, you know, all your assets held in real estate and equities and just pulling cash flows every month. Um, and also your time as well, you know, spending as you grow older, you're probably spending more time with either family or friends. You might be busier with work. You have less time to really get into the nitty gritty and study companies. So as you get older, typically the evolution of the investor is when you're young and starting out, you have a higher risk tolerance. And then as you get older, you maybe just become a bit more passive. Again, I hate using blanket terms because even young people now I'm seeing are value investors, are deep value, some are growth, um, some are purely kind of income. So, but for me personally, as I get older, I don't think I could ever purely go passive. Um, and there's a lot of, kind of misunderstanding about passive and active. You know, if you're buying positions every month, you're active. Passive is purely buying into a position, mainly an ETF and just leaving it there for mm. decades. Um, most people consider themselves passive, but if you're buying equities and you're letting it sit there for four years and not reading the, the earnings reports or the annual reports, then that's kind of a, a poor way to invest in my opinion. Um, but as I grow older, I think I'm always going to be buying into ETFs purely from the standpoint of the market is hard to beat. And mm. in some years, I suspect I probably won't beat it. So I always want to have kind of capital in markets and just kind of matching the returns and distributing dividends, starting from a very young age. I've started doing, I want to actually start doing that this year um, with an ISA just because it's tax free mm. um, and there's certain benefits there. But as I grow older, I'm just going to be putting money in every month as I do now. And hopefully by the time we get to the mid 40s, there'll be quite a sizable mm. amount in there, putting in dividends every month or so or every quarter and when we get to later in life maybe if i have less time or even if the passion kind of fades um and i don't really feel like buying into individual equities anymore then i would likely you know shift i wouldn't just hold positions in equities and not kind of keep up to tabs i might keep a few core positions hmm. um might move some capital into different things Personally, real estate is something really attractive. Um, I've always contemplated getting a mortgage. Um, deposit rates are quite high. I could technically go out and get one, um, but I just feel like it's not an efficient use of um, however many tens of thousands of pounds right now. Yeah. Um, but real estate later down the line is something I'm really interested in. Just from a homeowner's perspective, uh, rents are quite high. And then also just from like, it's another cash flow um, yeah. when you're building equity in a house as well. Mm. So yeah, I think as I get older, eventually it may slip into being more passive, but it's really hard to tell. Um, the passion is still within me and still like red hot. Um, I really enjoy it. It's one of the things that gets me up in the morning, really excites me. I could talk about it for days. Um, so if that fades, maybe I will just become more passive. Mm. Um, but as things stands, I'll always be partly passive because I do uh, allocate capital into my Vanguard ETF fund every month, regardless of what's happening. Is there a percentage that you put into, you know, passive? Yeah. So I actually, if I'm being transparent, I actually not really figured out like 
how much weight do I want to have towards ETFs? It was mainly a decision of, I do want to have some exposure to just general market trends because mm -hmm. I don't typically invest in the UK. Um, partly because I'm not really super attracted to the companies, partly because the accounting is slightly different. Um, I'm more familiar with US. And so I buy into just a general UK ETF. Okay. Japan as a country and economy really excites me and interests me. But again, I'm not super familiar with the business cultures. Mm. I'm not super familiar with the, the economy uh, on a, like a concurrent basis. Um, the accounting standards, I've never really spent a lot of time understanding that. But I would like to match the returns of the Japanese market. Mm. So I'd simply just buy an ETF um, with a big bundle of Japanese companies in there. Um, in terms of weighting, I think my portfolio is 20 times larger than my ETF portfolio. Okay. So I think, yeah, there's quite a dis disparity there. Mm. But um, I think for now, as I'm young, most of the capital will be getting allocated towards the general portfolio where I hold equities and a smaller percentage will be in the passive ones. Um, but as I get older, that might change because the risk tolerance kind of shifts. Mm. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that kind of transgresses as time passes on. Okay. On, on risk, you just touched on it, but is there a like a, a perfect uh, diversification level for you? Uh, yeah, this is a, a very personal thing as well. You know, um, some people are happy. I really enjoy watching people uh, have like super ridiculous returns year to date. Some people are like over 100, but they own like highly overvalued growth stocks in cloud and computing in hot industries that don't actually earn any revenue, um, which is fine. Mm. Um, I own a few positions like that, but I couldn't personally have all my capital tied up in that. I don't have the capacity to kind of watch my portfolio potentially sink 50, yeah. 60% in names like that. You know, if, if Starbucks falls or if, um, MGM falls, I know that they have the liquidity and the capital and the future kind of incomes are a bit more predictable. Um, so I'm happy kind of waiting that out. But if a company like C Limited, for example, um, the, the business is less established. It's been around for a less time. So it's slightly more kind of, it's, it could, Things could change for that company a lot faster than it could for a Starbucks. Yeah. Um, so in terms of your tolerance to risk, I typically like to have, as I said, 65% in income and then 35% in growth. Um, but that might change. If you if you look at the kind of history um, between value and growth, since 2016, general growth positions um, in the market have outperformed value. And these are cyclical things. Typically, they overturn and overtake. If you go back to 2000, you'll see that in the run-up to 2000s.com crash, growth was um, excelling far past value and had done for numerous years. Mm. And after the crash, value outperformed for six years until 2006. Um, but right now, I think stand growth's been outperforming since, since that period. Um, so eventually it will it will turn mm. the tides will change and then maybe my risk tolerance and allocation might change as well yeah. um so yeah it's kind of a fluid thing uh, but right now i'm happy with the kind of 
weightings that I have. Okay, that's great. So you, you covered earlier um, one of your your worst or your least performing investments with the cannabis company. Um, yeah. w- would you share your your best performing investment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so just to be clear, the canopy one wasn't so bad. It was a loss of five percent, um, which wasn't terrible. I I have a really bad one, um, which was a small allocation, so it wasn't terrible for overall returns. Um, my actual worst investment would be this company called Elixinol Global. Mm. And Elixinol were a CBD company, um, which is one of the kind of things you can derive from like, cannabis cultivation. And CBD typically is the element void of THC, which is the psychoactive element in cannabis. CBD is more for your muscles and pains and uh, things like that, less psychoactive. Um, so this company, or a small Australian company, and if you understand the the Australian market, IPOs, initial public offerings, are far more common because companies, the private equity in Australia is slightly different to maybe America, and small cap companies IPO a lot more often in in Australia, just purely as a way of raising capital. It's not as big a deal. Um, so you have a lot of small cap companies in Australia like that, and Elixinol were one of those. Originally, this was kind of when I was interested in the cannabis movement. They were still, this was prior to the pop, um, so it's still really interesting and a lot of hype and heat around there. Mm. So I picked up some shares in Elixinol. They had a three-pronged approach. They were basically in hemp-derived foods. They had a pending license for medicinal cannabis cultivation, and they also had operations in Japan and America, Australia, and the UK for their CBD business. And so it was three different businesses under one umbrella. Um, and the biggest, I made so many mistakes with this investment. So overall, it was, I think it was around five, 600 pounds, which is small. And um, this was back in 2017. So I had this position and it was up maybe, it was crazy. It was up like 58% in the space for a few months. Um, I was super happy with that and I didn't do anything and just let it ride. But I let it ride as I was reading the reports that the CEO was changing quite frequently. I think in the space of two years, it changed four or five times. Wow. Um, which is a big red flag to me now, obviously. But at the time I was like, oh, okay, cool. They're just changing the CEO. Um, I just... When I first invested, the earnings were really good. The projected earnings were really good. And I was reading other quarterly reports and the kind of cash burn was insane. They eventually started, uh, they made a mishap in Japan where they were selling CBD um, without the proper compliance. So they had to sell their Japanese operations at a loss. Mm. I still didn't sell the position. And then they basically scrapped their cannabis cultivation permit. They were like, it was pending for numerous years and they just scrapped it. So immediately there's one big future revenue pulled and the hemp foods division, they sold at a loss as well. So now it's just a CBD company based in Australia. Um, and I was still holding it. And I think it tanked, it, was, it became like a ridiculous penny stock and I lost maybe 85%. Wow. And I kept it, I kept it in the portfolio a lot longer than I wanted to purely just because a, it was worth nothing. I think I sold, I think it was like 50, 80 pounds, something I sold it for. 
but I left it in there to kind of remind me like small caps are like extremely different to large caps. Um, there's a lot of returns to be made in small caps. In some instances, they're the best performing over some periods of time. But you really have to understand the kind of nuances of investing in small caps before you just go in and plug your money into there. Mm. Um, not, not that I like take profits, but if you see like some wild rally in two or three months, I think that's kind of an exception. You could take profits there. Mm. Also, just assuming that the company will pull back. I was guilty mentally of um, when I was down 40, 50%. I always remember thinking, you know, it's been up 80%. Like, what's happening? And I wasn't, I was reading the earnings reports, but I wasn't really absorbing them and thinking rationally. Mm. Um, so that that was probably one of my favorite investments as well, although it was the worst. Mm. It taught me so much that I've then carried on today. Just on that, what are some, you know, you mentioned the five CEOs coming in and out, but what are some other red flags with small caps? I think, so small caps, personally, it's not actually an area that I'm super versed in. Mm. Um, but obviously, it was naivety at the time to jump in. But I think with any company, if you see weird things happening in management, management randomly leaving or if they're switching a CEO around, I remember uh, for Elixinol especially, they had, uh, let me think of his name. Uh, I can't remember his name specifically, but their original CEO was the founder and he had taken the company over 20 years and kind of grew the hemp food division. And he knew a lot about CBD, he was an industry um, expert. He'd founded the company and basically he just got kicked out. He was removed and made non-executive board member. And they brought in a new CEO. And then three months later, they switched that CEO again. Um, so that's a red flag. You have to ask, why are they doing that? This is the guy that's at the top of the, or girl that's on top of the pyramid, um, making all the decisions. It's not a light decision to just shift your CEO around, especially CFO, even checking all the layers of management. Looking at their track history as well, um, if management's doing weird things, that always raises a red flag for me to kind of investigate further. Mm. Um, other red flags so many avenues you could go down because there's so many types of businesses where one thing might be more crucial to this business and one thing might not be as crucial to the other one. Um, but for some companies, more, say, income-producing companies that pay dividends, I'll be looking at their cost of debt. Um, if you look at companies like McDonald's and Coca-Cola, they have a lot of debt on the books. And the actual expense they pay every quarter on the interest of the debt that's um, outstanding for them. In some cases, in some quarters, that's 25% shaved off their bottom line. So they'll have their operating income, which is what they have left after deducting all the operating expenses from their gross profit. And you have operating income. And then from operating income, you're going to be removing taxes, interest payments, and any other non-recurring items. Um, and if your interest payments that you're paying on your debt are substantially high, you're going to be hurting your bottom line. And if the company's not doing anything to kind of shave that expense, paying down debt, um, that'd be kind of a red flag to me. Um, Coca-Cola is a position I do have. Um, they have a lot of cash. Flow. They're kind of a bit more shielded than someone maybe like Starbucks during the lockdown. Starbucks is a bit concerning right now. Mm. Um, yeah, red flags are just things like, 
certain parts of the business performing really badly, what kind of return are they getting on shareholder equity? If they're investing their retained earnings, what are they doing with that? And how much return are they getting from it on a consistent basis over a period of years? Mm. How are they allocating their capital? Um, so Starbucks, I keep referring to Starbucks, but I just feel they have quite a poor capital allocation at the moment. Um, so they're, when you have capital allocation, you can do a few things. You can, if you have leftover cash in a business, you can hold it as cash and zero returns on it, or you can like put it into corporate debt and earn small interest on that. You can pay down some debt. You can buy back shares. You can pay dividends, or you can plug it back into the business, buy new assets, generate returns off those. For Starbucks, that might be new stores or a new operating plant, drive down costs in the long run. Um, and if you look at Starbucks, they're basically raising debt and using that debt to pay huge share buybacks. So buybacks um, are good sometimes, sometimes they're not. And what the company is effectively doing is buying shares from the market of their own stock, kind of destroying those. So the number of outstanding shares uh, falls, thereby anyone that holds equity, their concentration of the business ownership increases. So this is a good thing for shareholders. And it's one of the ways that cap, uh, companies can kind of return uh, returns to the investor as opposed to share price appreciation or dividends. Um, but Starbucks have a sketchy debt situation right now as it is. Um, a lot of their stores are locked down. Their worst performance for over a decade, the last two quarters, yet they're still raising billions of pounds and paying billions of pounds in buybacks and dividends. So for the first two quarters of the year, I mean, it's quite a unique uh, kind of context to be in. It's not like they do that all the time, but if they were to continue doing that consistently over the next few years, then I would question the management's kind of capital allocation and maybe consider pulling out. Mm. Um, so all these kind of things like red flags are kind of contextual. Um, for me personally, it's mainly like what's happening in the business and how are they running it? Um, and then if you look a little bit higher and look at the management, um, economic trends are something that I do keep an eye on, um, but I don't really make investment decisions based on economic trends. They tend to be historic data, whereas the market is forward-looking. Um, but if you can notice wide kind of trends for like an industry, um, and you feel like in XYZ years, this industry is going to be 50% smaller, then it might be prudent to pull out of that industry preemptively. Um, mm. But yeah, it's personal. Yeah. That was good. A lot of information there. I'll go back and listen to that. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So before this, we were talking about best and worst uh, investments. So uh, what's your yeah. best investment then? So best, um, and it feels weird to say because it was only a position I took up in May, was actually just something that I sold yesterday. Um, so prior to this year, I only had one position that grew over 100% and that was PayPal. And that was something that I bought early on in 2018. Um, and watched it slowly grow. And then come 2020 and Apple, Livongo, Square, CrowdStrike, PayPal, they're all over 100%. Mm. Um, so it's quite crazy to see. Again, I don't get too sucked into it. I'm quite good now at kind of detaching the value of my portfolio from my personal finances mm. um, for the most part anyway. Um, 
So my best position was Lavongo, something I picked up in May, sold it yesterday for 130%. Yesterday was Wednesday, the 5th of August. Um, so yeah, 130% return. I do have positions right now that are, I think Square is like 155%, but it's unrealized, you know, so you don't have returns unless you actually sell the, yeah. the security and book that. Um, but other than Lavongo, which is maybe a bit of a cheat, um, I think PayPal is one of my best investments. I remember distinctly in 2018 researching PayPal. Um, it's probably the first time I really like spent a new number of days looking into a company. Um, I read a lot of their previous annual reports. They only had maybe three or four at the time because they only IPO'd back in 2015, I think. Mm. So they didn't have loads of data. Um, but I spent all week kind of looking at it and coming up with some kind of arbitrary value for the company and then saying, yeah, I think it's overpriced right now. I'm going to buy it and just sell it. And I did. And over the last two and a half years, it's now up about 127%, give or take, um, as of Thursday. So I've never, I did actually once feel like I wanted to sell it. Um, but I had a discussion with someone and they kind of said to me, you know, why do you want to sell it? Um, and I had no reason that would kind of uh, relate to my thesis for selling. Mm. So none of those boxes were ticked. And they were just like, well, you shouldn't sell it then. And I'm glad I didn't because um, it's proved to be a really good investment since then. Great. So I think it'd be interesting for the listeners to, to understand what you do on a typical day. So today you said you're off, but on a traditional yeah. work day, um, how do you balance everything? Yeah, so this is an interesting one because um, as a lot of people know, I actually still work full time. And then I also do investment talk kind of every second around that. Um, so a typical day, and one thing to understand is, um, so I work in the investment space, largely in kind of the fintech area. So company I work for shifted uh, out of office very easily. Hmm. In the space of two days, everywhere globally was um, working from home. I now actually work from home full time. As part of new policy, I opted to work from home full time, um, got set up in my apartment. So I'm home most of the day. And since I started Investment Talk, that has always been the case because we were locked down. And I was at home, at my desk, at home. I didn't know that I'd be working from home permanently. Um, but that was, that's been a situation. So I balanced kind of investment talk around work as well. Um, but a typical day, I'd say on a weekday when I'm working, which is also something I'm working to kind of get past to. Um, so I wake up at 6 a.m. every day. I, when I was a student, I never used to like waking up. Waking up at like lunchtime was good for me. Um, it wouldn't be absurd to wake up at 1 p.m. Um, I'm sure most students can relate. But now, um, over the last few years, um, I've really gone into the habit of waking up super early. Um, so I wake up at 6. And typically, for the first two hours of the day, um, first thing I do when I wake up is drink 500 milliliters of water straight away. Kind of flushes all the toxins. Um, kind of gets you feeling a bit more awake. Um, I find that really helpful. Also, um, after I wake up, 
I'll typically exercise, depends what day of the week it is. Um, even if it's just for 10, 15 minutes, just to get the blood pumping. It could just be, you know, like some, some push-ups, some lunges, some running on the spot. Um, burpees, just literally to get your blood pumping. It's not really to kind of build muscle. It's just to get your blood moving um, and your brain working. So 6 a.m., wake up, drink some water, maybe do 15 minutes of exercise, and then I'll get on my desk at 6.15, spend the first two hours of the day typically working on investment talk-related content. So as you know, I have a newsletter where I post every day of the week. Um, so that takes quite a lot of maintenance. Um, and the night before every weekday, I typically have a set list of to-do things for that day. Um, so I'll run down those, whether that's create a new article or transcribe a voice note that I've just produced. Um, the first two hours will typically be spent focusing on investment talk related stuff. If I don't, if I already have like a catalog of articles ready to go for the week, um, which sometimes happens, I like to prepare in advance. Um, then I might just spend some time reading some earnings reports or catching up on some other related things. Then typically 8 a.m. is the point where I'll then switch into work mode and start doing that. Um, I shouldn't really say it, but thankfully, I can kind of do investment talk during the day at work as well. You know, um, the work is not super strenuous um, right now. And I've kind of been there for a few years now that I understand it and I can kind of work through it fairly quickly. So I just aim to get that done, meet the deadlines, clients are happy, you know, take a few phone calls, whatever it takes, just stay, make sure that Microsoft Teams is on mm. um, and I'm available. And then during the lull periods, of which there are a few in the day, I'll typically just go back to working on investment talk stuff or you know, doing what I do. And then typically my work day officially ends at maybe three. Um, so I typically work eight to three, um, which is really good, convenient for me. Even when I was in the office, I never used to take a break. I would go in 6 a.m. and leave at 3 p.m. Um, and just work through, I would eat obviously, but I would just work through and leave early because one of the big things for me <clears throat> is to obviously work really hard. Um, I'm not going to say play hard, but, you know, work really hard um, and just have a day. You know, if you can finish at 3 p.m., um, you still have five, six, seven hours of your day. So for most people in the working world, corporate life, you know, you go in at nine, you finish at five, you might not get home till six, um, whatever. So your day is just your afternoon. Um, but for me, I want to have as much of my day as possible. Mm. Um, so I do work insanely hard when I am working and get a lot of stuff done. But it's really important for me to have a good work-life balance. And I'm super aware that a lot of people don't have that. So I'm really grateful. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's typically during the, work, the, the week. I wake up at six, uh, work till eight on investment talk. And then from eight to three, mostly is working at my full-time job. And then from three to four, usually I give another hour to investment talk related stuff and then I'm done for the day. Mm. Um, obviously being in the UK, it's quite awkward because market open US, which is where, where I mainly invest, is 2.30 p.m. in the UK and it doesn't close until 9 p.m. in the UK. So I'm always somewhat alert during that period of what's going on in the market. Um, 
typically don't like to act on stuff that happens during the day either way, but um, I'm aware of what's going on. Um, and yeah, afternoons are just mine to enjoy. And then the weekends, I used to work quite a lot on the weekends, but over the last few months, I have stopped doing that. Hmm. Um, um, some people like to work on the weekends. They feel like it's you know free time to get stuff done. And I will do that if I have to do something. Um, but I like giving myself two free days off. You know, uh, life's short. Um, you have to enjoy time with your family and your partners and, you know, give yourself a break. I'm quite guilty of getting too, you know, when, when I'm doing something and commit to something, I'll be very laser focused. So actively just taking time to let yourself breathe and relax is something that's really important. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I think, yeah, taking the time off on the weekend is probably stopping you from burning out because it sounds like a lot of work, yeah. a lot of time yeah. actively, your brain is thinking all the time. Um, so if you were to give some advice to someone wanting to pursue maybe your career or investing in general, what would you say to them? So a few things. So investing in general, and I'll say about more professional career as well and kind of tie it in. Um, if you're looking to get a professional career um, in finance, I am a big advocate of tertiary education as a university. Um, I don't feel you need it to get into finance. Um, for me, a degree is just a slip of paper that gets you into a room to sit and interview. Um, and the reality is that is what it is. Um, as soon as you have a degree, you're cast into a pen with you know 500 other applicants with a little piece of paper as well. Um, so getting a degree is sometimes important. But obviously, I've been discussing this a lot on Twitter recently because I mistakenly made a foolish error of replying to someone's tweet uh, related to something political. Uh, I just I just keep seeing people replying to my tweet. But basically, I was just saying that it's great in Scotland because educate, uh, tertiary education is free. So I went to university for four years and then one additional year, and it was all free. And in fact, the government paid me to go to uni as well. Um, so that's something that very fortunate to have. I feel like I don't have that great an opinion on the rest of the UK just purely because if I had to pay, you know, sixty thousand pounds a year, forty thousand uh, pounds—sorry, not a year—sixty thousand pounds for four years of a degree, I'm not sure I would want to do it. Mm. Um, I understand the structure in the UK is different. Um, it's not actually like a huge debt pile. You pay it off, like when you're earning and stuff like that. Um, so for me to say, go get a degree, um, I don't know, I just feel like it's, it's not my place to say, but just on a personal level, I think getting a degree if you can um, is a great way to propel you in terms of professional careers, but also in terms of your own education, because um, it widens your kind of horizons. You speak to people from different cultures, ethnicities, um, Countries, they have different backgrounds, different insights. It's a real eye-opener. Um, you know, if you're from a small town in England or Scotland, or um, you might not be exposed to that. So it's great um, on a social level. Um, but yeah, I would say get educated and then just be persistent. Um, apply for entry-level positions. One thing I really, really, really value is the CFA. Um, I actually took it on a personal level. So I never studied the CFA to, you know, get a job at the end of it. Although I was aware that helps. Um, I undertook it because I wanted to understand the subject from my own point of view. 
Um, it does help you get certain roles. Um, some positions will say, we need level one. Uh, if you have level one, then that's like a tick box. You can come in and get an interview. Some positions will say you need an IMC, which in the UK is an investment management certificate, which allows you to provide financial advice. Um, so yeah, I'd say CFA is really great if you can afford it. I know a lot of people can. Um, it's just the reality of things. A lot of corporations actually pay for you to study it as well. Um, the company I'm currently with recently had a new policy where they're like backdating everyone's qualifications. So I might get refunded for all of that, which would be good. Um, but yeah, I'd say education, even if it's not um, a degree or a CFA, there's so much stuff online for free nowadays. Um, just educate yourself and just keep, it's hard at first with like general accounting and finance because it feels so foreign. Um, but the more you expose yourself to it, the more you'll eventually absorb that and put it into your longer term mm. memory. Um, so I'd say that's on the professional side. Um, if you're looking just to purely get into investing, I don't think you need a degree at all. Um, if someone wanted to pursue a career in some other aspect, but they wanted to start investing on this, I wouldn't say on the side, but you know, just in life generally to increase their wealth, uh, you don't need any qualifications or a degree to invest. Investing is can be simple um, if you want it to be. A lot of professionals like to make it out as though it's like some difficult task. There's a lot of jargon, uh, but if you strip it down, it's really simple. You just have to understand how a business makes money and if they're doing it well and if they're going to continue to do it. Um, so I would say educate yourself again, but you can just buy some great books. You don't need any formal education. Um, the accounting stuff is something that I struggled to find good books on, which is why I made that guide. Um, but two great books um, are The Interpretation of Financial Statements. Same Title, one's by Benjamin Graham mm -hmm. and one's by Mary Buffett. They're two excellent books if you're looking for kind of to dip your toe into accounting. Mm. Um, I would definitely recommend reading those two. And then you have the Little Book series, which is basically a book series of short books between maybe 150, 200, 200 pages, each written by experts in their field. Um, related to investing in personal finance and wealth building. Um, they're an excellent set of books because they give you a, a kind of granular, but yet high level view of a certain subsection of investing. It could be secular trends in markets. It could be value investing. Hmm. It could just simply be building wealth. It could be passive. Um, John Bogle's one is, is quite good, but it's a bit boring. Um, other books as well. One of my favorite books of all time is Stress Pest, uh, Stress Pest, Stress Test <laughs> by Timothy Geithner. Um, and that gives you kind of like a behind the scenes view of the 2008 financial crisis. Um, that's a really good book about risk. Um, and you have, you have classics like um, The Intelligent Investor by Ben, by ben Graham. He also has another uh, more dense book, which was his original book called Security Analysis which I read when I was a novice and it went over my head, but I recently reread re it last year and it made a lot more sense. Mm. Um, it's a great book if you're especially invest, uh, interested in value. Mm. Um, Philip Fisher is also one of my favorite authors as well. He has a book called The I think, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits, 
that was one of the first books I read that was like no jargon. It was just straight up talking about um, how to look into a company and how to know if it's going to do well and if it's doing well. Um, there's no jargon in that book. It's simply just kind of a set of things you should be looking at when you're looking at a company. It kind of introduced topics to me like, you know, what are the management doing? Mm. Um, kind of things like that. Really great books. On my Twitter account, I do have a pinned thread um, with loads of books in it at one of the points. If you want something more technical, um, how to get a present value for a discounted cash flow, um, you're probably going to murder the name, but Aswath Damodoran, um, professor in New York, he is the king of valuation. He has a book called The Dark Side of Valuation, and he also has one of the little book series, um, The Little Book of Valuation. He's a great author. He teaches you the more technical aspects, um, you know, how to kind of do a 10-year discounted cash flow, um, how to arrive at the present value, how to do dividend discount models. Um, so when you've read a few kind of introductory theory books, maybe great to gravitate towards that. Um, but I think in general, the invest in investing, having skin in the game is really important. A lot of people say, ask me, you know, is it good to do paper trading? Um, which for those who don't know, is just basically signing up to a broker and it's kind of like imaginary investing. You know, they give you 50,000 fake pounds and you invest it and everything the same as investing, but it's not real money. Um, I think that has uses. Um, if you're trading or learning how to trade derivatives like options or futures contracts, um, it can sometimes be beneficial to test stuff out without using real money um, in that kind of paper trading environment. Um, but if you're investing in companies, I think even if you're going to lose the money, I think right at the very beginning, it's important to kind of have money in the market and see how you feel emotionally when a company plummets 50%. You know, when I bought into Elixinol, um, my emotion and kind of investing strength was very poor. Um, mm. When it was up, I was elated. And when it was down, I was like, oh, we'll come back. Um, it'll break even, then I'll sell it. You know, like stupid things like that. So I think those kind of failures teach you so much more than you could read in a book or you could experience from winning, um, which is something that kind of worries me about March. You know, people that started investing in March, um, they bought at the bottom. And now they're just riding it all the way up to the top. Mm. Um, they might have made a substantial amount of cash there, which is really cool. Um, but if they started in March, they've probably not been tested emotionally. Uh, they yeah. might have read about it, but they've probably not had that big, you know, test. Um, so that's something you don't really learn until you've actually been smacked 50% um, for a big position. Or I think having even a tiny amount of skin in the game just gets you used to that. And it, kind of incentivizes you to track your company a lot closer as well. Mm. But I'd say investing is like maybe one third reading and theory, one third actively participating in the markets, and then one third learning at the very start. Um, so it's kind of split between those three. You'll fail so many times, um, which is a good thing. You should look at every failure as kind of a reflection point. Um, even when you win, that should be a reflection point. Um, I sold Tesla earlier in the year at $750, somewhere around that range. Uh, and it was like a 30, 35% return in the space of 
maybe a few months, uh, which was which is a good thing. But my self, when I find out three months later, you know, that would have been two, three times, uh, two, three hundred percent better, mm. uh, more returns. I look at myself and say, you know, why did I sell back then? You have to revisit, even if you've made a profit, even if you've kind of um, made a good, unquote, investment, you still need to revisit those and kind of question, you know, was I right here? Was I wrong? What was my rationale? Um, with the Lavongo Health sale yesterday, 130%, that's great. Um, but I will likely revisit that um, in some months to come or a year to come, mm. depending on how that company functions. If it does really well, then I'm going to be questioning myself, you know, why did you not see that that company was going to be great synergy and it's going to propel forward? Um, so, yeah, I think that kind of covers it for like, yeah, just mm. read, learn your mistakes and have some skin in the game very good you mentioned tesla so what what's gonna what's gonna make you want to buy again what will be the factors <laughs> so prior to march i actually prior to the whole uh march fiasco i had like a target of roughly around 550 set for tesla i thought that was a fair price and something that i would happily just kind of um buy a small position in because then if you're wrong you're wrong small, but if you're right, uh, you're right slightly bigger, you know? Um, so when it triggered that kind of price level in March, I could have bought a lot lower. I think it sunk to like 350 maybe, but mm. I picked up a small position. Um, and then when it got to 750, admittedly, the emotional aspect came in, you know? Like um, when I started reading through the earnings report that they released, I just couldn't understand the valuation. Um, and I get that there are a lot of Tesla bills out there that know way a uh, lot more about Tesla than me. But I guess I kind of bought into Tesla and the false pre uh, premises. You know, the margin is not something I would, uh, the gross margin is not something I typically find attractive. The industry is not one that I find attractive. You know, Tesla moves like the valuation of like Ford in like two hours. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's great. It's ridiculous when you think about it like that. Yeah. Like, um, but this is still a car company. I know people are going to be screaming like, "Oh, it's not a car company. It's a technology company." It's a, and I agree with that. Like, I, I do think the the technology is crazy and it's so superior. But it's like the only kind of company in that position. So there's not really a lot of great things to kind of compare it to in terms of value. Um, mm. So I guess my rationale for selling at the time was. I feel I just couldn't understand why it was being valued so highly, um, which, I get, which might sound really moronic. Um, it was one of my lower conviction positions as well, and I wanted to move that capital into something else. Um, it feels more like people are buying Tesla or buying into Elon Musk more than Tesla. That's what it feels like from, from now. Yeah, and that's something that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. Like I think Elon Musk is a great guy. Um, really interesting guy, super, super smart. I'm not sure how great he is as a CEO. Um, half of me says, you know, like um, corporate America is so like rigid and structured. Like it's good to have this guy just like openly kind of quite blase and relaxed. On the other side, if you have millions invested in Tesla and you have this guy um, on, you know, kind of the masthead promoting the company and running the company, 
um, and he's calling scuba divers uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> and he's t- uh, baiting the SEC. I remember distinctly being in an airport in Milan a couple of years ago when he tweeted, um, going private, uh, sovereign wealth fund, Saudi Arabia, whatever, funding secured. I don't know if you remember that fiasco, but basically he tweeted that Tesla was going private and it was going to be bought out for 420 pounds a share. So obviously the market reacted and the price rallied up uh, up to that price because that's what it's going to sell for. Um, so it's clear as day market manipulation, whether he meant it or not. Mm. <clears throat> um, so stuff like that just kind of mm, put me off. Like, Although it would be a small position, um, just you just have to be consistent and prudent. I just couldn't, I just couldn't buy into that. But I think Tesla's a great, great company, and I really want them to be the future of um, vehicles. Hmm. Okay, that's great. Now I'm really enjoying this conversation. But just to um, finish, who yeah. would be the most, or maybe more than one person, the most influential people on your, you know, life so far? It's a good question. Um, I think on like a, a general level, you know, your family. Um, we'll go too much into, you know, like your parents. Um, so seeing your parents working hard, um, also siblings, um, seeing them working hard and doing good things um, with their professional careers has always been um, kind of an incentive towards me. Um, I think in terms of the investment space, uh, Benjamin Graham was the first kind of investor that I really kind of like latched onto and understood as it is for most people. I don't really agree with his... Um, well, not agree with it, but I don't really follow his kind of um, teachings so much. Um, I'm not super into deep value or value, but I can appreciate it and understand how to take uh, an opportunity in that kind of space. Philip Fisher was a great one. Um, similar style, um, but a bit less jargony. And Aswath Damodaran, he is the guy that got me through the CFA. Um, just because his books are like similar level of quality and same topics. Um, but in general, um, I don't know, it's difficult for me to kind of say, oh, I look up to this person or this person. Um, just any general person who's inspiring. I don't really have particular ones. Like I don't say like, oh, Obama's great. Or like, oh, I love Donald Trump. Uh, I wouldn't say that anyway, but you know, like I don't have anyone in particular that I kind of idolize or follow. Um, I have big respect for anyone that's kind of like doing stuff to improve the lives of others or themselves. Um, but yeah, inspiration comes from small places for me. I like seeing stuff like that. Okay, great. Now, now where can people find you? So people can find me on Twitter at investment talk with two K's. Um, they can also find me on Instagram, same username. I'm less frequently active there, but I still do post. I also have the Investment Talk newsletter, which you can find on the bio of my Twitter. And you can catch me on email at investmenttalkwith2ks at gmail.com. Great. I'll be sure to link everything. Thank you for your nice. time. Great chat. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed listening to Connor's story, how he invests his money and some of the ups and downs he's had along his journey so far. 
All of Connor's links will be in the description of this episode. So if you'd like to see what he's up to, go check them out. You've been listening to The Financial Father and Son, where we explore the various ways the younger generation can achieve financial independence. Take care.